You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, look in the seats in front of you and you can find Revelation 1 on page 1028. You know, there's something that happens in your 30s and 40s, or at least in my own experience, and that is you begin to realize that what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 12 is right. No matter how fit you are, no matter how healthy you are, you start to realize that, guess what? The eyes start to get dim. The teeth begin to wear down. The muscles no longer swing without creaking. And there's a whole industry that's intended to hold that process back, and that's the exercise health industry. It's a nearly $40 billion a year industry. And what it's trying to do is keep us from ultimate atrophy. Atrophy is the decreasing effectiveness of a device. And that happens because of neglect or reduced usage. And so all of us understand that the body is heading toward a position of atrophy, and we try to slow that down as much as possible. Same thing happens spiritually. There are forces that are intending to develop spiritual atrophy in our lives. One of the reasons for that is because we live in a war zone. Here's a quote from Paul Tripp. In his book, Lead, he says, we live every day in a war zone, and no Christian should do his or her work without, with a comfortable peacetime mentality. And friends, if we approach the Christian life as though we are in a time of peace, or as though somehow a time of peace can be achieved, we will develop spiritual atrophy. We'll see in chapters 2 and 3 that the seven churches in Asia, to whom John writes, were either experiencing atrophy or were experiencing the threat of atrophy. And so wouldn't it be amazing if from a physical standpoint, we somehow figured out some method, some physical trainer unlocked the secret so that as we got older, we actually grew stronger. As we grew older, we didn't just pause the process of atrophy. We actually removed it completely. Wouldn't that be awesome? Guess what? It doesn't exist. Whether it's P90X, whether it's the Orange Theory, whether it's Bar Method, whether it's CrossFit, it doesn't exist. And at best, we can only slow it down. But spiritually, it does exist. Spiritually, we have a method of exercise and a physical trainer that actually gives to us what no physical trainer can provide, what no exercise method can provide. And that is a tremendous blessing. Look at the big idea in your notes. We see in this text that the love of Christ is expressed in his sending exactly what his church needs to conquer and endure until he returns. Amen and amen and amen. Let me read Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that soon must take place. 
He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are the ones who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Four ways we can evaluate to understand and apply the blessing that the book of Revelation is. Number one, the resource of blessing. The resource of blessing. It's revealed in the opening words of verse one. It says, the revelation. Now remember, when we study God's word, we unpacked this last week, we first approach it with micro tools. With tools that require us to focus on the text we are studying. And we look at the language. We look at the historical context. And that begins our journey to understand the text as the original author intended for the original audience. But it does not stop there. We actually take macro tools as well. We'll back up and we see the text in light of the whole story. And then we recognize that from Genesis to Revelation, the light in the room gradually increases until we get to the end of the Bible and the light is turned on completely for us to see all the details of the room as God intended us. And so we look at the grammar, we look at the words, and it says the revelation. The word revelation is the Greek term, I did this last week, (laughs) apocalypsis. It's the word apocalypse. And if we're not careful, we tend to hear this term and think that it means end times. It does not mean end times. You can write that down. The word apocalypse is actually found elsewhere. You can write down these verses. Luke 2.32, Romans 16.25, Galatians 1.12, and Ephesians 1.17. Each one of these passages include the term apocalypse, but do not refer to the events of the end times. The word apocalypse simply means unveiling. It simply means to unveil. And we better understand what John's usage usage means when we recognize that the other place where this term is used in terms of prophecy is Daniel 2. You can write that down. Daniel uses this term apocalypse five times in Daniel chapter 2. What he's doing is he's revealing the things that what must come to pass. G.K. Beale says this. This is what must come to pass. This revelation is intended to unveil what must come to pass from the incarnation of Jesus, which is past to the writing of this book. 
in their day, the day of the seven churches, which is the present, and until the eternal kingdom is established, which is the process of the future. Now, I put those in parentheses because that is important for us to understand. If you want to know what the apocalypse of Revelation is about, it is about the past, the events of Jesus' incarnation, the present, the events of the seven churches and what they were experiencing in, and the process toward the future. It's not simply revealing to us the last few years of world history. It's revealing to us the past, the present, and the process of the future. All of this is included in the apocalypse. The question must be asked, is this needed? Is this book and the unveiling that it provides needed for Christians? And the answer is a resounding yes from the Trinity themselves. In addition, we could say that Revelation is Jesus giving to the bride his church the unveiling that they need to be able to conquer and endure until the end. What a blessing this is. If we're to look at the flow of communication, it's as though Jesus, as the head of the church, said to God the Father, listen, I want to give the church something that will help them conquer and endure. They are facing the threats of atrophy. They are in a war zone. And I want to give them the ultimate tool that will equip them to conquer and endure. So God the Father says, okay, I'm going to give them an apocalypse. I'm going to give that to you, Jesus. Jesus then gives it to his angel, who then gives it to his servant, John, with the intended audience, look at what the text says, of Jesus' servants. Literally, in the original language, it's his slaves. You can go to 1 Corinthians 4 and see the imagery. These are the rowers on the bottom of the ship. These are not the intellectual elite. These are not only the scholars that can understand this. This is intended that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this is for you to not just have, but to study, to understand, and apply so that you are equipped to conquer and endure until he comes. What a blessing, isn't it? But then the words are so important. It says in verse 1 that God gave Jesus. The word gave means to give an object implying its value. How would I hand off an extremely valuable piece of china to someone in this church? I would not toss it. I would give it to them so that even in my giving to them, they recognize the value of the object even in my giving. So he does that, but then he also gives it to Jesus to show The word show means to reveal the significance of the value of something. So not only in the handoff is this important, but even in the presentation, even in the communication, it conveys the significance of the value of the object. But then verse 1, it says to make known, which means to clearly communicate. Beloved, this is the blessing of, of the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. It kind of is like this. I have been to a museum with my daughter, Mallory. I love dating my daughters, and unfortunately, with the busyness of life, it hasn't been as regular as I would have liked. 
But I remember one time in particular, I went with Mallory, who is an artist. Maybe some of you have seen some of her work. She is talented. I remember deciding that because she likes art, I'm going to do something I would never choose to do. I was going to go to Nelson Art Gallery with her. I mean, the highlight to me is that big shuttlecock on the outside. But as we're walking around, I'm, I'm looking at all of these paintings, and i got to tell you, I'm looking at them just kind of like this. Okay, next. But Mallory would stand there and stare. She would start to tell me, do you see those colors, Dad? You see the strokes of the paintbrush? Ah, oh, look at the card. And look at what the artist was trying to convey. And I'll tell you, it took me from boring to, uh, I'm interested. But then take that a step further. We have a a relative on Sally's side of the family who is a curator of one of the museums in Kansas City. And when I hear him talk about art, it just takes it to another level. And even in the way he's communicating, he's communicating passion. Even in the way he's describing it, he's trying to grow my appreciation of it, grow my understanding of the value. And I walk away from that sharing his passion, reflecting his passion, and walking away recognizing the brilliance and the genius and the value of the object. See, listen, God is the curator of redemptive history. He is both the artist and the designer and the one carrying it out. And what he's doing here is he's saying, Jesus, I'm going to give your bride, the church, what they need to understand the value, to see the significance, and to clearly understand it. That is what revelation is. What a blessing. So friends, we must recognize the resource of the blessing That will soon take place. More on that as we get to verse three. Number two, the requirements of the blessing. The requirements of the blessing. Again, remember the micro lenses. Let's recognize the historical context. The seven churches, verse four, that are in Asia were experiencing trials. We'll study this in more detail in chapters 2 and 3, but that is the historical context. They were experiencing trials in their own individual hearts. They were experiencing trials in their own individual local churches. They were experiencing trials in the surrounding community and the Roman Empire around them. Trials, trials, trials. But John says, you'll be blessed. The word blessed means to pertain to something that is happy, implying enjoyable circumstances. Wow. Imagine now the original audience, trial, 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 happy circumstances. I want that, wouldn't you think? But what John is about to unpack is, listen, it's not ultimately this mysterious pill that if you swallow it, boom, you're blessed. There's actually... A requirement. What is the requirement? Well, look at verse 3. Blessed are the, is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. In the ancient world, letters would be written by an original author and an individual who would be sent to not only deliver it, but to read it aloud. And this individual usually had a relationship with the author. Therefore, their objective was not just to read and accomplish a duty, but to convey the passion and the the point that the author intended. 
They would be tasked with reading it and being effective in the communication, being clear to make sure that the audience understood clearly what the author intended. That is something else. And I got to tell you, I feel the weight of that. I felt the weight this morning. I continue to feel it even at this moment. My task as we study Revelation is to not just read the facts, but to effectively communicate it. And if I do, by God's grace and for his glory, I'm going to be blessed. But look at what he says. He says, blessed is the one who reads the words of this what? What does it say in the text? Prophecy. What does prophecy mean to you? Actually, don't answer that because who cares? If we ask that kind of a question when we read this ancient text, we're already off on the wrong foot. Bible study should never ask the question, what does it mean to you? What Bible study should ask is, what does it mean? So what does prophecy mean? Well, when we read the Old Testament, we see that prophecy is so much more than predicting the future. Listen to this quote by G.K. Beale. It's less an emphasis on the future as much as it is divine disclosure demanding an ethical response in line with Old Testament prophecy, which primarily addresses present situations and only secondarily foretells. That is important. Take a couple examples from my own study through the Bible just recently, the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah does foretell to Nineveh that in 40 days, Nineveh will be defeated, but the primary focus of the message of Jonah is repent. How fascinating is it that in one of the most complicated prophecies in all of the New Testament, Daniel chapter 9 and the 70 weeks, the whole point is Israel repent. Just read the prayer of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. He's praying a prayer of repentance. That's the point of the prophecy. And so whether you're in Hosea or Isaiah, and there are prophecies that do foretell the future, the primary purpose of prophecy is an ethical response. Same thing is true with Revelation. So friend, if your view of prophecy is foretelling of the future as primary. If your view of the apocalypse is end times, let's recalibrate our understanding to what the Bible actually says. So blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, but then look at your responsibility as a listener. And blessed are the ones who hear. The word hear can simply mean to be aware of noise. But that's not what the original term means here. What it means is sitting at the edge of your seat with expectations to understand and respond appropriately. Friend, is that how you are listening to this sermon? Is that how you came to the book of Revelation to study? To hear as the original text intended, to be at the edge of your seat, to be taking notes, not just for the purpose of learning, but to the point of being ready to respond appropriately. Then you'll be blessed. And that's why the next verb is provided, and who keep. I love this. The color that is added by looking at the original language is that it literally means to keep on keeping. 
What John is saying is, listen, it's not like you read Revelation and now I start keeping the commandments of God. Now I start keeping what is written. That's literally what the term written means. It's all of scripture. It's not just that I begin. If you're a follower of Christ, this is to be the pattern of your life. You are ongoing, keeping, and it's actually a present tense verb. So it's like John to the original audience is just popping off the pages saying, listen, keep on keeping on. And you'll be blessed. This was a disclosure demanding an ethical response. Listen, even if you don't have kids, you can understand the logic of this, that sometimes your kids get spiritually and behaviorally stuck. You understand that? Your child who's an angel at home and walks around with a halo hovering over their head is actually not behaving that way at school. That would never happen. And you get that note or that email from the teacher that's saying, listen, your sweet baby angel is a devil child in my class. (laughs) What do we do? Well, we try to shepherd their little hearts, but listen, at some point you might have to bribe them. Now, the end game of bribery is not behavioral change. It's just to be a stopgap measure to get them to a point where they can hear the instruction that you're giving them. And what we typically do when we bribe them is we say, listen, if you will be good at school for a day, (laughs) usually a week, you will get this. And what we do is we dangle out in front of them something that they value very highly, right? Well, how motivating is it when you tell your child, listen, if you will be good this week, I'm going to give you something real nice. What is it, Daddy? Real, didn't you hear the, in the real nice? <laughs> yeah, but what is it? Uh, it'll be really good. That doesn't really motivate, does it? But what John does here is he says, look, you are going to be blessed. I want happy circumstances. That's what the churches would have said. And he's going to unpack it. But what he's motivating them by is what we'll read in the next few verses. The one who is sending it. Wouldn't it be awesome if our children would be so motivated that simply their obedience would please their parents? Wouldn't it be awesome That even greater than that, they would be motivated because it's not just pleasing their parents, it's pleasing their creator. That's what John was dangling out in front of the churches in Revelation. Oh, friends, you will be blessed and be motivated by the one who is sending this apocalypse, by the Trinity who is at work delivering this information to you. Be motivated by that, and by that motivation, fulfill your requirements, and if you do, guess what? You will be blessed. That's the beginning of verse 3, but it leads us to the end of verse 3 through verse 6. Number 3, the realignment of blessing. The realignment of blessing. Unfortunately, we are going to be skiing over gold There are so many golden nuggets in these following verses that I would love to unpack with you, but we would never get through. There's a game tonight at 720. (laughs) Actually, there's a Vikings game right now that I have not checked the score. Do not tell me. We're going to ski over gold, beloved. Look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, 
grace to you. Oh, do they need grace? We need grace, don't we? Undeserved favor from the God of the universe and not only grace, but peace, inner peace. You know, so many times in the Bible we see the word peace and we apply our own expectations to it as though peace always means absence of conflict. That's not what peace means. What peace means is harmony. What peace means is stability. What peace means is a fully reliant disposition on the God of the universe. So that if he has ordained conflict to continue in my life, I still will be stable. Don't we want that? Don't we want to be able to lay our heads on the pillows at night with all the craziness that is going on in the world, with all of the realities of cancer and health and relationships and economics and politics, and to be able to sleep soundly because we have inner peace? Don't we want that? God promises to these churches grace to you and peace. And who is it that's sending this apocalypse? Well, it's revealed in these verses from him who is and who was and who is to come. And oh, man, I wish we could dig into this, but let me just ski over it. That phrase is a formula from the Old Testament. You can write down Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, and Isaiah 44 and verse 6. What John is doing is instead of saying from God the Father, he's saying from an Old Testament lens, this is God the Father. The one who is, he's present. The one who was, he's always been. And the one who is in the process of coming to fulfillment. See, that's important for us to understand. See, I think, again, we can apply our own lenses to the text, and we can say the one who is present, the one who was, but the one who's someday going to come. That's not what this is saying. What it's saying is he is in process to fulfillment. And I want to encourage you to write that down. Because if you can get that that is the perspective of the future to the author, it will help us better understand Revelation. He says, this revelation is from God the Father. But then he says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. There's a lot of opinions on what this means, but if we understand the use of seven in the Bible and the use of seven in Revelation, we understand this is symbolic. We understand that John is actually referring to none other than the Holy Spirit. The word seven is a number that describes completion, perfection. And in that way, we can understand back up in verse four, the seven churches are literal churches because we'll see them in chapters two and three, but they're also figuratively representing all churches of all ages of the new covenant. Therefore, we come back to verse four, we see that God the Father is involved The Spirit is involved. And then verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. Oh, the descriptions here are so rich, and we'll unpack them more in the next section that we study. But he is the faithful witness, or literally in the original, the faithful martyr. The firstborn of the dead, that means he's conquered death through his resurrection, and the ruler of the kings on the earth, that means that no king can exercise their authority in a way that trumps his authority. That's pretty cool. So the Trinity is involved. The Trinity is giving this apocalypse. 
And it is for the purpose of equipping the church to be able to conquer and endure until Jesus returns. I don't know about you, but I'd be reading this and hearing this and be like, let's go. Let's do this. What do I need to do? Well, here's where we need to realign our understanding of the blessing. Verse 6 tells us what we need to do. It says that he made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever. Amen. Let's not apply our own understanding in the 21st century on this text. Let's actually let the text speak for itself. The use of the terms kingdom and priest and dominion are tying back to the Old Testament. You can write down Genesis 1.28. God gave as instruction to his first humans that they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but also to exercise dominion. God, as king of the universe, gave human beings the authority to exercise dominion. Our task as human beings is to, on this earth, carry out the authority of God over creation. But not only that, you can write down Genesis 2.15. It says that the Lord God placed Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. These two terms are only found together elsewhere in Leviticus to describe priestly duties. Adam and Eve were supposed to be priests over creation. And by implication, they were to pass on the instruction of God to every subsequent generation, which is the duty of a prophet. And so God had tasked Adam and Eve to be prophets, priests, and kings. And how did they do? Fail. Then he handed this off to the patriarchs, to Abraham. Abraham was supposed to exercise kingly duties, priestly duties, prophetic duties. How did he do? fail. Isaac, fail. Jacob, fail. Twelve tribes sent down to Egypt. They were there for hundreds of years. God brought them out of Egypt, put them into his promised land, and said, listen, I'm not going to expect every person to be a prophet, priest, and king. I'm actually going to have offices, prophets over here, priests over here, kings over here. You can write down Deuteronomy 17 and 18. There you see the instruction that God gave so that each one of those three offices could carry out their original creation mandate and live up to God's standards. How did they do? Fail, fail, fail. Man, you see a pattern here? Humans are not able to fulfill God's original design on their own. Enter the Messiah. Huh. He exercised kingly duties perfectly, prophet duties perfectly, priestly duties, Hebrews 9 and 10, perfectly. So that everyone now that is attached to Jesus through faith by trusting in his completed work can actually exercise and is empowered to do so through the Holy Spirit, the responsibilities of kingdom, king, prophet, and priest. And in fact, we see that in verse 5. Look at what it says, to him who loves us. That is a present tense verb. And he loves us in the way that he has freed us, a 
aorist tense verb, focusing on the action itself, not the ongoing nature, freed us from the slavery to our own sin. That's awesome. It's awesome because now we are actually empowered to carry out those creation mandates to be prophets, priests, and kings in our own lives, in our families' lives, in our local church. Wow, this is a blessing, but it's not the blessing that we might have thought of when we read verse 3, right? The blessing is we can actually carry out God's creation mandate no matter how hard it gets, and it's going to get hard. Er. What a blessing this is. No matter how dark, no matter how hard, he gives us what we need to conquer and endure, carrying out the prophet, priest, and king responsibilities of his people. Before we move on to the last two verses, let me give you a literal translation of verse 3 because I think it brings this all together. Blessed, it'll be up on the screen, is the one reading this aloud and the ones expectantly hearing the words of this prophecy and continuing to keep what has been written because the sands of the end of the age have begun to drop. When John says at the end of verse 3 that the time is near, when John says in verse 1 this is something that must soon take place, what he's not saying is, listen, the years that will end it all are on your doorstep. What he's saying is that the season that will wrap up in the end has begun with the person and work of Jesus Christ here on earth. Which brings us to number four. The revelation of blessing. Verse 7 says, Behold. (laughs) That's what the word means. It's intended to grab your attention. When the original audience would have heard this, they would have waken up. What John is bringing to his attention is, I don't know about you, but I think the first six words were, words were, verses were pretty fascinating, and that would have grabbed my attention. But John says, listen up, I want you to see something, and that is Jesus is coming with the clouds. And for most of us, we're like, okay, we, we, we understand he's coming back someday, but this was tying into Daniel 7, 13, and 14. We studied this when we studied the Gospel of Mark. One of Jesus' favorite titles to give himself is the Son of Man. Referring back to Daniel 7, 13, and 14, when Jesus was brought before the religious leaders, he tells them in Mark 13, I will be coming on the clouds. But that's not where I want us to really anchor. I want us to anchor on the next Old Testament reference to which John alludes, and that is Zechariah 12, 10 through 13. Now let's apply the micro and macro lenses first by just simply looking at the words and understanding the historical context. John says, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and will wail on account of him. So so let's just look at those words and understand the historical context. John was saying that every eye, every human eye will see Jesus coming with the clouds every human eye that pierced him. 
and they will wail on account of him. How John uses this vocabulary throughout not just Revelation, but also the Gospel of John and the epistles of John is that those who wail on account of Christ are mourning over him in repentance. This is so important. Because, beloved, that's the only way that you and I can have a relationship with the God of the universe. That's the only way that the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection can be applied to us is we must repent. We must acknowledge that it is our sin nature that pierced Jesus. What John is not doing here is speaking literally of the individuals who were responsible for hammering the nails in Jesus' wrists and feet. He's using symbolism here, just as Zechariah does in Zechariah 12, to say, look, these are the ones who are responsible for putting Jesus on the cross. And listen, the way you enter into salvation begins with you acknowledging that you and I are responsible. That it is our sin nature, not anything we've done, but by our very nature of being sinners at the point of conception, which is where life begins. Every human being who has been conceived, whether they're born or not, is responsible for Christ's death by their sin nature. That means all of us. And so the ones, though, who have been saved and actually repent will actually mourn over that. They'll actually be sad about that. And there will be a day when Jesus comes with the clouds and everyone who has responded in faith will have that moment of realization, wow, it was my sin that put him on the cross. So that's the micro lens. Now let's spread back and actually consider Zechariah 12 and what John does here. Zechariah 12, 10 through 13 almost says exactly the same thing, but John intentionally changes the quote. In Zechariah 12, 10 through 13, Zechariah the prophet says, they will look on him whom they've pierced, but who is it? Those in Jerusalem, those in the house of David. Zechariah is describing, I think, the same event, but with the lights in the room down dark, very low. And so Zechariah is describing this event with a blurry understanding, using terms and concepts with which he understands. And so he says the Jews, ethnic Jews, will mourn over the one that they have pierced. But John has the ability to see things with the light turned fully up. And he says, look, it's not about ethnic Jews. It's about all believers from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that's why he adds the phrase, from the tribes of the earth. That's awesome. This has always been God's plan from the beginning of creation that it did not depend what your ethnicity is or your social status or your economic status. What mattered is did you place your faith in the God of the universe and trust the sacrifice that he would give through Christ to forgive your sins? Now I'll just plant a seed. This will actually educate us when we get to Revelation 5, 9, and 10, where John says in the throne room there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Not speaking literally, but symbolically. 
proving a point that this was always God's plan. So here's what I want to ask you. When that day comes, when Jesus comes with the cloud, will you be part of the group that will mourn because you recognize it was your sin nature that pierced him? If not, friend, this is your opportunity. Will you acknowledge that the God of the universe has the right to establish the standard, and his standard is perfection and holiness, and all of us fall short of that? And because of that, he is just in condemning each one of us to eternity in hell. But God made a way, a solution that through Christ, through his life, his death, his resurrection, we can be forgiven. Have you trusted in his completed work? And then like a baby who breathes for the first time oxygen into its lungs, will you surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord of your life? If you do that today, you will be part of that group that when he comes with the clouds, you will mourn because you realize the significance of your sin. It will quickly be turned into celebration and joining him as the coming king. Here's a quote. For, this is the first of many opportunities to recognize that true understanding, application, and enjoyment of blessing comes through definitions and expectations from the perspective of heaven, not the world system. Friends, this is just the beginning. This is the first building block and our building of the foundation of the apocalypse that is intended to provide for us as a church everything that we need to conquer and endure until he returns.